So I think that as Americans, as I was mentioning during the prayer, that we have been grieved, we've been disturbed by displays of political violence in our country over the past nine months, that we've seen an autonomous zone in Seattle, we've seen the Portland Federal Courthouse surrounded, we've seen unrest in American cities, and of course this past week we saw the, the Capitol building stormed and the violence and the loss of life that followed. And I think that, that as we reflect on the, the political divide, we see that both sides of the political aisle want to, to blame the other side for what's going on or want to point the finger as the, the violence is coming from the other side. But it was interesting that as I was working on this message this week that I, I was outlining my sermon. I mean, you heard me read, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God's the things that are God. Uh, that I was, I, on Wednesday morning, I was getting a sermon outlined about our role in the world relative to the political order, what that means, what that, that looks like. And then when I saw the events unfold on Wednesday, I, I was struck, as I often am, by the relevance of God's word for the situations of life. And especially when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, section by section, verse by verse, that, that what comes up quite often is exactly what we need in our context. And I think that this is no different because it speaks into the question of how do Christians respond to the call of the state and the call of God. And so if you were here over the past few weeks, you'll remember that, that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He went into the temple, cleansed the temple, kicked out the money changers. He began teaching in the temple as a display of his own authority. He was challenged in his authority, what we looked at last week by uh, the leaders. And then he, he, he laid out the case for his own authority. But today, in this text, you'll see that the religious leaders are, are out to get Jesus. They're, they're entering in Holy Week. Um, the, the pressure is getting closer. They need to see Jesus brought before the Roman officials. They need to see him uh, punished. They need to see him executed. And they know that they do not have the authority to carry out the death penalty. That it is only the Roman officials who have the authority to do that. So they send these spies subtly to try to trick Jesus to find some way so that they can haul him before the Roman authorities so that they can accuse him. Now I'm hearing a little bit of feedback here on this. I'm going to turn that down slightly. Um, so as these spies then come before um, Jesus... They, they pretend to, to be sincere, and they start to, to ask him questions. And look at their, their question in verse 21 of your Bible. They said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And so there, right away, you see that, that they're dishonest, they're, they're trying to flatter Jesus, to, to lord the guard, so that they can ask this question. They say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so it's a clever question 
Because if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's committed a crime. He's become a political revolutionary. They can haul him before the Roman officials. They can um, have him punished. But then if he says, yes, you should pay tribute to Caesar, suddenly the people who are there listening to him say, wow, well, this guy must not really be the Messiah because the Messiah will kick out the Romans. He'll establish peace and justice in the world. And maybe he'll even be stoned to death by the crowd for supporting Rome. And so it seems like a lose-lose scenario for Jesus. No matter what he says, he's going to lose, or so they think. But then look at how Jesus responds in verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? So they pull out their denarius, and, he, and they say, he says, whose inscription is it? They said, Caesar's. And so you can see what, what Jesus is doing. He says, pull out a denarius. Now, a denarius is actually quite a lot of money. It's about the, the wages for a day for a laborer. Not a huge amount of money, but it's quite a bit of, of money. And so, so one, it shows the, the wealth of some of the people who are listening to him that they can just, it's like pulling out a $100 bill. They're pulling out a pretty large sum of money. And then Jesus asks about the inscription, what is on the coin? And if you go to museums, you can see Roman coins from this period that the, it would have the image of Tiberius Caesar on the coin. And it would have this Latin inscription, Emperor Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then if you took the coin and you flipped it over to the other side, you would see an image of the Roman high priestess, this, this female figure seated on a throne with a, a scepter in the right hand, a palm branch in the left hand. Listen to how one commentary then describes the significance of this Roman coin. It says that the denarius oozes idolatry. And Jesus highlights that fact by asking them about the image and the inscription on it. By possessing such a coin, the would-be informers incriminate themselves as those who are impious. By bringing such an unsanctioned, portable, graven image into God's temple. And so that's saying that, that for a faithful Jew, a Roman denarius is not something that you would necessarily want to carry around. And the, the second commandment is clear that you shall not make graven images. And then here's this portable graven image of Caesar with a very statement in Latin saying that the emperor is divine, that he is God or, or a demigod with this idolatrous symbol of the Roman high priest on the back. And they're bringing this into the temple, into the very center of, of worship. But then as, as Jesus points out the, the image and said, whose image is this? It's Caesar's. He then makes one of the most profound, succinct statements on politics in the Bible. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. 
And so today, for the rest of our time, I want to just camp out on that verse. Camp out on verse 25. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And immediately as you look at that phrase, you'll see that it itself has two sides, almost like a, a coin. On the, the one side of this coin, the statement of Jesus, is our duty to Caesar, our, our duty to the civil government. The other side of the coin has our duty to God, to our creator. And so let's start then thinking about the, the first side of that coin, the, the duty to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And of course, when it says that, I think we understand implicitly that, that it's not a, a phrase that expired after the fall of the Roman Empire. That by saying Caesar, Jesus is, is speaking of, of Caesar as the representative of the civil government of the time. And so you could almost say that, that, that what it's saying is render to the civil government what belongs to the civil government. And so as we talk about the, the civil government, then it, it's helpful to, to step back for a moment and reflect what does the Bible teach about the civil government? And so we can ask three questions about this. So the, the first question would be the origin of the civil government. Where does the civil government come from? And so turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 13. And this is probably one of the most important extended passages on the role, the purpose, the origin, the powers of the civil government that we have. And I'm gonna to refer to this quite a bit. And so I would actually encourage you to stick your bulletin in Romans chapter 13 or your bookmark in some ways because we'll come back to it several times. But look at Romans 13 beginning in verse one. The apostle Paul, tells Christians in Rome that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so Paul is saying that the civil government has its origin from God. It's, it's his institution, ultimately. And you see this in a dialogue between Pontius Pilate and Jesus just before the crucifixion. It's just a few days after our text here in Luke. But Pilate says to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And so you can see what Jesus is, is saying. He's saying, yes, Pontius Pilate, you have authority. You do have true authority, but your authority is derivative from God, that you would have no authority unless it had been given to you by God, that, that, you're, that you have, you're, you're the holder of the keys of an institution that has divine origin, but the authority is from God. Again, that's the origin of the civil government. But then you can ask another question about the civil government, if that's its origin. What is the purpose of the civil government according to the Bible? And so again, looking at Romans 13, 
Romans 13, verse 4 says that the, the civil government is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And that's a remarkable thing, again, for the Apostle Paul to say that, that the civil government, talking about Rome in their context, is the servant of God. That it is the avenger bringing God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Remarkable thing for him to say. And it's very similar to what the Apostle Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. He says that the civil government exists to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so God instituted the civil government, and he instituted it for a purpose. And that purpose is to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. And so for the Bible, though it recognizes the uh, wickedness of governmental oppression, it also recognizes the, the danger of anarchy, of lawlessness, uh, that a good example of this would be a movie. And um, of course, pastors, whenever they mention an R-rated movie, say, I haven't seen it. And I honestly have not seen it. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's a, a movie which I've seen a preview for and, and read the description of um, called The Purge. Um, and it's, it's this movie about a, a future dystopian America, I believe, uh, where everything seems great on the surface, but once a year, the, the, there is a holiday where all laws and all enforcement of laws disappear for 12 hours. Um, and people can do whatever they want. And of course, then anarchy ensues for 12 hours. But then, again, the order comes in. And I think that that, that kind of a movie demonstrates this, this idea of what happens when the restraining God uh, ordained institution of civil government disappears, uh, it's, it's a horror movie. It's a movie that we don't want to see or a reality that we wouldn't want to, to live through, that the civil government, even the Roman Empire, according to the New Testament, has that function that it's this, this floodgate, this, this dam against the excesses of sinful human nature that would break out into the world, that if the absolute excess of sinful human nature was allowed just to have free run in the world, that it would be the end of the world. It would be the absolute breakdown of all society and order. And so that's the purpose of civil government that we see here. But then we can ask a, a third question. So I was saying that the origin of civil government, the purpose of civil government. But then we also see powers of civil government outlined in the New Testament. And according to the Bible, one of the, the primary powers of the civil government is to wield the sword, what you could call the lawful use of force. Um, Romans chapter 13, verse 4 says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for the civil government does not bear the sword in vain. And so biblically, the, the civil government has the, the right to make laws and to enforce laws. And that's part of it carrying out its purpose of restraining evil in the world. And related to that ability, that, that right of the government to wield the sword, that, that's different from a private individual, um, is the ability to levy taxes. We talk about death and taxes, inevitable realities in the world. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 
13, verse 6. Believing, um, building, I think, on what Jesus says in our text from Luke. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Which, again, is a really remarkable thing for Paul to say about the civil authorities, about the Roman Empire with all of their conquest, all of their oppression, all of their idolatry, all of their wickedness, that he says that they are ministers of God. That's what the civil authorities are, according to Scripture. I'm a minister as, as a pastor, but it talks about civil authorities as ministers of God, attending to this very thing. And so, so there's this, this right of, of taxation that we see here in Scripture. So Again, that was, that was stepping back from the text for a second, looking the origin from God, the, the purpose to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good, the power to wield the sword, to, to collect taxes. Now, there's much more that could be said on that. That's a very kind of simplistic biblical theology of civil government 101. But it provides a backdrop as we're, we're thinking about what Jesus is saying in our text from Luke. So turning your Bible back to Luke chapter 20, verse 25. And remember, we're looking at that first side of the coin there, that render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And you say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to render to Caesar? And the first most obvious thing that it means is paying our taxes. And it's probably the, the most obvious application but again, it's what the Apostle Paul said back in Romans chapter 13. And I, I read this a second ago, but I'll read because it goes on. He says, For because of this you also pay your taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And again, that's a shocking thing to say. It's shocking for Jesus to say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, because he's not saying that, that they should render to Caesar what is Caesar's because they like the way that the money is being used by the Roman Empire, because the money was being used for gladiatorial combat, for, for conquest of nations, for persecution of, of religious minorities. But he says, no, it's your duty as Christians to render to Caesar to pay your taxes. And this has, of course, practical, nitty-gritty implications for you and me, even in our country as we enter tax season, that, that as Christians, we're to be careful and scrupulous with our taxes, that we're actually doing God's will when we are careful with our taxes, that we don't exaggerate our deductions beyond what we should. We don't take cash payments to try to avoid paying taxes. We don't try to to pay cash to employees so that you don't have to do payroll tax. You, you try to be as faithful as you can. And of course, we make mistakes. Sometimes you, you might do something wrong on your taxes. But we're to be faithful, as faithful as we possibly can be, and paying every cent that is owed to the civil government, even if we don't like the fact that we have to do it or we don't like where the money is going. That's part of the calling of faithful, Bible-believing Christians. So that's the first part of what it means to render to Caesar, of paying our taxes. But it's not just that we render our money or part of our income to Caesar, but rendering to Caesar also means paying honor, paying respect to our governing authorities. Peter says this in his letter, 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake, and that's key, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's the purpose again. For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And there you see, in summary, what Jesus is saying. He says, fear God. And we'll get to that. Render to God what is God's. But he says also, honor the emperor. Render honor. And this is a man who would be crucified upside down under the authority of the emperor Nero. But yet he tells us, be subject to every human institution. Honor the emperor. And he doesn't say, honor the emperor because the emperor is honorable. Honor the emperor because the emperor is godly. Honor the emperor because you like his policies. But he says, no, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. And so that means as Christians, we are called to honor our president for the remaining weeks in office. We're to honor President Trump, when, or President uh, Biden, when he takes office. We are to honor Governor Wolf. We are to honor our state representatives of both parties. We are to honor members of the House and Senate of both parties. We are to, to honor our Supreme Court justices, both the the liberal and the conservative justices, we are to honor our officials, to render honor to the civil government. And I, when I say that, I'm not making a political point or trying to take a political side. And I'm not saying that we should always agree with our governing authorities, that we shouldn't uh, work to campaign against governing authorities. Uh, but, it, but we should always honor them and the way that we speak about them to our family and our friends on, on social media, the, w the way that we comport ourselves in regard to our civil leaders that we, it needs to be done with honor and respect for the Lord's sake. But then third, we, we, rendering to Caesar means obeying the laws of our civil government. And so again, it's, it's paying our taxes, Showing honor, it's obeying the laws of our civil government. That, that we're scrupulous in, in paying our taxes, but we're scrupulous in obeying the law. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor, says this. He says, so long as, we as, so long as we have liberty to worship God in Christ according to our conscience and to serve him in the way of his commands, we may safely submit to the requirements of the state which in our own private opinion we do not thoroughly approve. And so you can think about something like the speed limit. You may not like the speed limit. You wish the speed limit would be higher in certain areas. You can ask your officials to raise the speed limit or lower the speed limit. But when the government asks you to drive the speed limit, they're not asking you to sin 
against God. And so according to scripture, as far as we are able, we're to be faithful citizens of our nation, that we are to obey the laws of our nation as far as we can and remain faithful to the Lord. That, that Christians, according to the Bible, are not to be vigilantes, are not to be revolutionaries, are not to be anarchists, that we are Christians first and foremost, and that no matter who you voted for, no matter who you support, no matter your political views, that our call as Christians is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to render our taxes, to render our honor, to render our obedience as far as we are able. So again, we've been looking at the, the side of the coin, looking at the, the duty towards Caesar. But before we move to the other side of the coin, looking at the duty to God, I want to answer a few possible objections, things that might be rolling around in your mind and the things that I've been saying. And so here's one objection that you might be thinking about from what we've been saying. Uh, I said that, that Christians are not revolutionaries, that we're not vigilantes. But you would say, well, is there ever a place for revolution? And that's a complex question, and I don't really want to hash out historical questions. People debate even the American Revolution. Theologians debate this. Was in light of biblical teaching where they write to to oppose the taxation of Britain and to wage a, a war of, of revolution. And, and you can have arguments on both sides. But I, I found actually an article in the back of the ESV study Bible. It's a great study Bible. And they, there's an article in the back on the civil government. And, and, and here's what it, what it says. It says that Christians have differed over the question whether God's people should ever support revolutions against evil government or wars to gain independence from evil governments. Some Christians argue that Romans 13, verse 1 to 5, prohibits this, especially where Paul says, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. Others have argued that Paul has in mind here only the conduct of private individuals, but that lower officials who are under a wicked higher official are in a different situation. They argue that lower officials may in fact be obeying God by leading a revolution or fighting or a civil war against wicked rulers in order to protect those whom God has given into their charge. And that thus, in protecting their people, they are fulfilling their responsibility before God to be not tear to good conduct but to bad, Romans 13, 3. And I think that, that that's helpful, showing the two sides that, that Christians have, have taken. But even as we can, we can read that, we can, there's a huge, massive difference between states sending representatives to declare independence and a mob storming into the Capitol building. There's a, a massive difference between those two. And, and part of what our founding fathers were concerned about was actually the danger of the mob as well. It's something that they talked about, the danger of anarchy, and as, as revolutionaries of a sort, they were, it was one of the few revolutions that actually didn't descend into bloodshed in the way that the French Revolution did, because there was this concern about anarchy and the danger of that. And so that's one objection that you might think about. Here's another objection that could be floating around in your mind to the, to the biblical teaching on the state. 
Because I said that, that rendering to Caesar means paying your taxes, honoring your leaders, obeying the laws. But, of course, the New Testament wasn't written for a, a democratic society. It was written to a society where people had very little impact on the functioning of the civil government. And so you would say, well, is, is the teaching here on the civil government actually relevant for a democratic society? And I think that it is, that you could actually add for us, yes, we pay our taxes, yes, we, we honor our leaders, yes, we obey our laws, but that part of participating, part of rendering to Caesar in a democratic society is being informed on current events, debating political ideas, uh, voting. Going into the voting booth is a form of rendering to Caesar our duty to the civil government. But then here's the, the third objection that you might be wrestling with, as I was this week, is we read the biblical teaching. What about civil disobedience? Was Rosa Parks rendering to Caesar when she refused to sit in the back of the bus? Was Martin Luther King rendering to Caesar when he opposed Jim Crow laws in the South? And then I think that as we begin to think about those questions, that, that's where we have to, to flip the coin over. Because we've been talking about our duty to Caesar, our duty to the civil government, but if Jesus only said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Christianity would be a completely different religion. Our duty would be completely different if that was where the period was. But Jesus adds the other side of the coin, that he, the duty to God, that we're called to render to God the things that are God. And it may be easy to miss at first, but this is one of the, the greatest limitations on the, the power of the civil government, because Jesus is, is saying, look at the coin. Whose image is it? It's the image of Caesar. So that coin belongs to Caesar. He can demand that coin back from you because it ultimately belongs to him. You're just giving back to Caesar what already belongs to him. But look at human beings. What is the image on human beings? The image on human beings is the image of God, that we are made in the image of God. And so to render to God, then, is not just to give him our money or to give him honor or to give obedience to man-made laws, but to render to God is to give our very selves, to give our lives, to give everything to God first and, and foremost, that, that we render to God by repenting of our sins, by, by trusting in Christ, by, by seeking to respond in lives of love and service and obedience by, by living lives of, of hope and, and faithfulness, trusting in his promises today and tomorrow and forever, that, that we're, we're rendering to God what is, what is God's. And in this framework, then, we see that the government is not the ultimate standard. It's not the arbiter of, of justice in the universe, that God demands our ultimate allegiance, not the civil government, not any representative of the civil government. And you say, well, what does this look like then to give this ultimate allegiance to God? Well, there's a great example in another passage in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. The, the Christians were preaching the gospel in the early church, and they were hauled before the authorities, the very same group of governing authorities that put Jesus on trial. And they command them, do not preach the gospel any longer. And then listen to how Peter and John respond. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And so for the, for the New Testament, then rendering to God means that if, if the civil government tells us to do something that we cannot do, that we do not form a mob, we don't break things, but that we practice a form of civil disobedience, that we, we go out and continue to, to be faithful to the Lord, to preach the gospel, to render to God what is God's, our, our complete allegiance and obedience. Or another example of this would be Daniel chapter 6, when King Darius made a law that no one could pray to anyone but to him for 30 days. And Daniel didn't say, well, to render to the king is to obey that law. But he, again, practiced a form of civil disobedience, that he went into the, uh, the, the view of everyone at his window and prayed towards Jerusalem as he had numerous times obeying the Lord and faced consequences from the civil government for doing so, that, that he knew that in that case he couldn't render to the civil government what it was demanding because he had a higher authority. And this is part of the reason that totalitarian regimes have always feared and opposed Christianity. Why the Roman Empire persecuted Christians so ferociously, even though Christians were seeking to be faithful citizens who, who pay their taxes. Because as a Christian, I am commanded to pay my taxes, but I'm not going to give ultimate allegiance to the state. I'm commanded to obey the laws, even if I don't like them as so far as I'm able, but I'm never going to obey the, 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 the state if they're commanding something that is against Scripture. I'm going to, to seek to honor my leaders, but I'm never going to worship my leaders. I'm never going to bow down in that sense of religious reverence to a leader. And that's troubling to the civil government that wants to claim ultimate authority over our lives. Now, as we pull this together, as we wrap up in our, in our time, then notice how the, these religious leaders undercover were trying to trap Jesus, but they presented it as an, as an either-or question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But that what we see here on both sides of this coin from Jesus is this truly revolutionary, in a biblical sense, truly radical Countercultural third way, where Jesus' answer was not duty to Caesar, duty to God, but duty to both together. And I'm not sure what the pressures will be in 2021. I'm not sure what what we'll face and the trials that, the, that that will come on the church in this year. But I think that that. One of the trials may be a, a call to choose between duty to God and duty to the state, or a call from either side of the aisle to engage in some sort of political violence, what we, what we saw this past week. And that my prayer for all of us, for, for the church throughout our world, throughout the nation, is that we can find this, this truly radical, countercultural third way of Jesus, that we can pay our taxes, honor our leaders, obey our laws as Christians. It's what, what Paul says that to offer prayers and intercession uh, for kings, for all people in high places, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But then at the same time that we would render to God what is 
gods, that we would repent of our sins, that we would trust in Jesus, they would have him first and number one allegiance in our lives, and that in that we would seek to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to pour out our lo- ourselves for, for neighbor and for friends and, and for family and obedience to our Savior as we render to God first and foremost, knowing that he is the ultimate authority, he is the ultimate king. Let's pray.